Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Uh, April 7th, it's 10.30 a.m. Pacific, uh, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Just so the uh, folks at home know, if you want to listen to this live, you can just go to the Acquires Podcast YouTube channel, subscribe, and you'll get a notification telling you that uh, when we go live... What are we? We're two percent up on the day. Uh, let's check. Uh, Royal Caribbean up twenty percent. <laughs> uh, wait, wait. I do this for a reason. American up. American Airlines up seventeen percent, and uh, Delta's up five. So I guess that the lower quality names are ripping a little more than the higher quality ones. I don't know. Maybe that's a, a small, too small of a sample. Three is not statistically significant. But regardless, welcome to Value After Hours. I'm one of the hosts, Bill Brewster, with my co-host Jake Taylor and Toby Carlisle. Jake, what are you going to be talking about today? Uh, I'm going to do a little segment on a research paper that just came out about decision-making that might help us all during times of uh, when there's a lot of information flow. All right, and Toby, what are you going to talk about? I've spent the last few weeks talking a little bit about the market, Uh, not really what I actually do when I'm running the portfolio. So I thought I'd just talk about why focusing on the market can be uh, a mistake if it impacts the way that you run the portfolio. All right. And I am going to be focusing on the market today. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sorry, uh, man. I set you up for that one. It's all good. We'll, uh, we'll talk about that right after right this. After this. By that I'm in right, right now. So we got, we got uh, Hawaii, Singapore, and San Diego in the house very global. Thank you. Thank you. Shout out to the 10. Let's start this off right. Um, so I'll start uh, with just sort of what's been going on. And I might as well start with the mailbag question since it's a perfect dovetail to my uh, segment. The mailbag question says the market is at spring 2019 prices. It seems stocks are reacting to the health and stimulus news more than realistic forward fundamentals. Many businesses may close down permanently. New hiring and business expansions won't just pick up where they left off later this year. Every operator I know will be more cautious next year than if coronavirus hadn't happened. Is the rally getting ahead of the fundamentals? Um, And obviously, like when you see price action like this, both down and up, right? I think um, it's... I guess that the best way that I know how to frame what I've seen in the market over the last three weeks is um, like emotionally, it has been way more of a whipsaw than it has mentally. 
Um, I'm still trying to square what I think is actually priced in here with what I perceive reality to be. And I guess I, I just have a couple talking points and then maybe we can just discuss some of this. But so like today, Kudlow came out and he said that the economy is going to open up again. Right. But it's going to be different. And Scott Gottlieb had said something about an 80 percent economy or whatever uh, the other day. I think about the way that operating leverage works. I mean, that last 20% is where a lot of your profit comes from. Yeah, good point. So 80% is like almost structurally unprofitable for many businesses. Um, and, you know, Goldman, I was reading through their, uh, their view of Boeing today, and I think that they are – this is a slightly different comment because they were saying that planes are going to be motivated to fly. That doesn't mean they're going to be full, right? Your load factor and how much you fly are sort of separate questions. Why are they motivated to fly? I guess because they need the revenue in the door. Uh, okay. So they're going to try to pick up as many legs as they can profitably. Um, I, I guess that like fundamentally the numbers are just so big and hard to quantify here that it's just very hard to get my head around like what we're actually looking at a couple years from now and how quickly that all happens uh, or a recovery would happen. I guess in short, like if we come up with some sort of treatment, this is almost undeniably a great buying opportunity. I, we don't have a treatment for SARS or MERS. I don't know what the world looks like. I mean, it's, it's just, feels very, very hard right now, I guess, is the best way to square the circle. Uh, so that's, that's most of my comments. I don't have a, a lot to say, but it's it's been confusing and confounding. Yeah, it has. I, I couldn't agree more. There's, there's, um, I, I think that before the bounce, we would have expected in a normal bear market to see a number of rallies. And I think that I have said previously that the mistake, to the extent that it's a mistake, that um, you know, to, to the extent that it impacts anything that any of us have made, it's I I looked at 2011, 2016, 2018 as potential 2000, 2002 or 2000, 2007. It's like uh, some sort of smaller bear markets that are like almost just technically bear markets, like they hit the 20% and bounce back as opposed to kind of like a mega bear, which is 2000, 2002, or 2007, 2009. I still think that this is probably more likely to be one of the bigger ones, even though we're bouncing here, um, just for the reason that we haven't seen any of the filings come in yet. And I, I just, to me, it feels, it's almost like magical thinking to think that we can just go back to what, were, what was already a very, very expensive market just be, just without ever having seen any filings, without ever see, seeing any damage. So now you come in with a whole lot of earnings that are going to look pretty ugly and the market is rocketing to a new all-time high. Just to me, that, that seems hard to kind of fathom. I think that you, I always say you can't distinguish a bottom from a bear market bounce until you've got like a year because you just don't know. It's just indistinguishable from anything else. But and, and I don't know, this doesn't feel like one thing or the other, like I have no feeling one way or the other. I just sort of think it's hard to imagine how we only go down like a regular bear, like a little bear, and then bounce like this. Yeah, it's like the 
starting to sound Baby like bear. Dolly Locks, aren't I? Yeah. It's just rambling at this stage, and it doesn't really impact the way that I invest. Like we're all just speculating here about about what we're what we're looking at, but it does. It just it seems hard to imagine that we're we're back to where we were spring two thousand and nineteen with kind of no, um, you know, without seeing any filing. It just seems hard to, for me to believe that. Jake, yeah. you wanna? Do you got yeah. thoughts? Uh, a little bit. I've. Um, I don't have anything. No one really knows the answers to these things, obviously. So it's f- just kind of fun to speculate. But I have been uh, doing some research on networks, like the math of networks, and also sort of how it relates to biology. And anytime you get interconnected systems that are very interconnected, and you introduce shocks into them, you. You really do. You have no idea how it pr- propagates throughout the entire network, and this is one of those kind of shocks that is, it, it skewers along some really interesting fault lines. You know, not like some some businesses are obviously benefited, others are hugely impacted in a negative way. Um, I, I don't get the sense that that all that we understand the second, third, fourth order effects of all these things. If this, if especially the economic impact, if we continue to be shut down like we are, uh, it, there's all the, all these things are going against a, a time. That's the part of it too, is that the leverage levels coming into this were so high, uh, especially at the corporate level. That means that there's a ticking clock on a lot of these businesses. Uh, and unless we can somehow put more sand in the top of the hourglass through the government or more sand in the gears. Well, it, uh, that becomes sand in the gears later, right? Like more debt, more, more everything. Uh, I don't know. I, I find it, what I find very interesting is how quick we have been on both sides of the aisle and to just completely abandon freedom and responsibility for, a quick grab of like, hey, government, we need everything out of you right now. Uh, like there's nobody talking about how there's any kind of overreach at this point or very rarely, at least in the circles I'm seeing, which I don't think. I mean, I remember 2008 and like talking about TARP, it was very contentious. People were like, especially the amounts. There was a lot of debate about how much was the right amount. And obviously they're just pulling numbers out of their ass to come up with like 750 billion or whatever it was. But I don't, there's no arguments now. It's the only real argument is like, this is not enough. That's the only thing that anyone ever says. <laughs> like, two trillion, not enough. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. The reason is Republicans have control. We've t- I say that as a registered Republican. It. Yeah, I know. But the, pro- the thing is, when Obama was trying to spend, there was no incentive to give him the. You could both make a principled argument not to spend and curtail his economy. A little bit by saying no 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 don't spend now when you have the power it's much easier to be like oh we got to spend because you want to keep the power i mean i'm like like i said i'm a registered republican but i i think not i think ignoring that dynamic like if biden gets in which i think a real risk that's not miss or that's not priced in is if biden gets in i think that there's a real strong probability that government or that uh republicans refined their financial you know, we can't overspend our means grounding. And then you could have some like some problems with some of the stimulus that's on the come. That's stimmy. 
So, so everybody wants. I got a good question up on the screen. How does the entire world pull away from this without doing what Japan did for the last 30 years? Do you think that's a fair analog? I, I think the thing that's different. So I guess I don't really know what the question is, but I, I think that what they're saying is there was so much debt on Japan that it sort of held back growth. Very expensive forward. market. Market collapses, just this ongoing QE now for 30 years. Uh, markets never regained those heights. It's been a pretty good market for value, which we'll, I'll come to in a little bit. But, um, you know, that the, it, it's been a, it's been a, uh, like the, the BOJ owns 75%. If this is wrong, feel free to jump into the comments and tell me. But my understanding is that the BOJ owns about 75% of the Japanese stock market now through ETFs. Um, Massive amounts of QE, just ongoing QE. I don't know. I'm not sure that that analog is 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 particularly good. Uh, I I personally think that the U.S. is a little more vibrant uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective, and that's really what is going to get us out of this: is entrepreneurs finding ways to solve these new problems that have been thrown up. I'm actually incredibly bullish on small business over a longer term uh like this is the opportunity like this is the the meteor that kills the dinosaurs and now the the nimble small creatures have a completely new ecosystem in which to to find ways to survive um if and if they're agile like that's the big thing like they have to be quick to figure out how to solve all of our problems under these new constraint sets uh, but there'll be new evolutionarily stable strategies that come out that uh, that evolve and you know, I think it's this is like a huge opportunity if you're a small business person. I know that it looks scary, uh, but being willing to move, I think, is your biggest advantage. Value Stocks Geek says the demographics were different in Japan, declining birth rates, which depressed inflation and interest rates. Demographics are different worldwide. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so although by, I don't know, by, by I don't Africa know. is that the answer? Then they got now with coronavirus going Maybe. there now. There's also an argument that uh, post these sort of um, pandemics that you get you get uh, higher real wages that everybody seems to do better. I don't fully understand that. I hope that's not because a whole bunch of the population's missing. <laughs> it could be. So, my, what what about this? What about the fact that what we've actually had by virtue of the virus or the government shutdown is this massive um, shock to the economy? How does, you know, these are, if you just ignore the money for a moment and you look at what's actually happened underneath, like businesses just aren't doing business. I'm sure all of you, like I paid my credit card bill, it was down 25% from the month before. I'm sure that all of you guys are in the same sort of boat. How does just putting a whole lot of money into the system make up for the fact that like business is really not selling, but there's no business going on or there's not much business going on or less business going on? Well, I don't think it does make up. I think what it prevents is a deflationary bust. I mean, if if you don't if you don't extend the liquidity right now, and all the equity needs to and and it's not all right. I mean, let's call it twenty percent of the businesses that are actually impacted. I mean, there's a lot of the economy that's less impacted. I don't think anyone is completely not impacted. But if you have all that equity have to recap itself, I mean, you follow those. Uh, your real estate values go down because people have less money. The pensions become more underfunded. I mean, this is a this is propping the system up because without this, in my mind, the whole system collapses. 
Uh, I th- I think this is truly systemic risk. Glad you're glad your notes pay zero for that, right? <sighs> right. I mean, this is what risk free actually looks like, which is absurd. return free. <laughs> yeah, return free risk. Yeah, like the world is not risk free ever. I, I think what it a lot of it is a a psychology play. I think to make you not reevaluate what's the appropriate price of a lot of things, a lot of assets. Uh, and whether that is a, a logical conclusion in that, shit, inflation is coming because of all this money printing, I need to just keep these assets and the price is fine right now because it's going to get inflated even higher. Or uh, you don't want to, you don't want everyone to go at the same time like, oh, this cap rate on this apartment complex is ridiculous. Like I sh- no one should have been paying this the whole time. If everyone wakes up at the same time, the world, the pricing changes dramatically, and then you have some real systemic cascading that that no central bank can control. So I think it's it's sort of a band aid type of thing to really more a band aid to go over your eyes to to keep you from looking around. <laughs> I one one point that I did want to make before I finish this com- this portion is I I do think if you put in a DCF like just build a really simple twenty five year DCF, a twenty percent reduction in today's prices you can get some pretty draconian assumptions uh, in in some of the years within the DCF where, like, I did one and I got a 23% reduction in price or whatever. It doesn't mean anything. It was just, like, a fun math problem for me. But what does that I, come from, Bill, from just, like, nuking these first two years in the in your model? Yeah, I mean, it was even, like, the first four to five. Okay. Um, but I, I also did, like, I I allowed for higher than... I didn't just nuke year two and then go, okay, well, now we grow 3% from here, right? I mean, I did have some rebound in the growth rate to get back. So I I do think like doing some basic math helps contextualize around what 20% really means. Um, But the the perception of risk in, in my head has gone up so much. I don't know that actual risk, it's almost like a you know, in, in physics where you have like potential energy and kinetic energy, I think maybe most of the time we're just like walking through the world, ignoring potential risk. And then like risk happens and we're like, oh, shit, this is really risky. But it's really just we disregarded a lot of the risk for a lot of the time. Uh, I don't know. It's just well, that's things the, I've been playing with over the last month. That's like the multiple paths, right? You only you only get to live one path, but at any stage, there's the, all of these potentialities of other things that you can do. And kind of being a being a good investor is preparing for every single one of those paths, and then whichever one you take, you either make sure you make it through, or you make sure you do very well. With the focus being that the downside is going to make it through. Yeah. Well, that's almost like taking value investing to portfolio management, right? Like you try to try to figure out what scenarios are possible within your ability and then manage how you're priced along the downside risk versus your upside capture. Uh, I mean, I guess that's sort of at the core of it, what we all try to do. What's your discount rate in that bill? The folks want to know. <laughs> Negative I think, no, no, I think I just hit it like with a 10% rate. I just wanted to get a, a sense of what the math looks. Ten percent. Like. How are you buying anything then? You're, everything's got to look crazy overpriced if you're putting in a ten percent. Yeah, I got some stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you do. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, 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 a lot of it rests on your terminal value. Uh, but that's yeah, that but was put a ten percent on that, and now it's not. It's not your value is going to be pretty small, right? Uh, I 
can send you the spreadsheet if you'd like to see it. So I think that's a, that's a good point for a segue. I, 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 I think it's good to talk about what the market does because I do think you need to at least understand, you need to contextualize where you are a little bit. You need to understand. It's, it's hard when you look at the portfolio and it's down 30% and you're like just such a, a monk about this whole thing that you're completely ignoring the fact that the market's down 30% as well. You know, that's, that's clearly, you haven't made a huge mistake. There's something bigger going on. In that context, you go and have a look at what the market's doing. You might feel a little bit, about bet, a little bit better about what you're doing. But I think... You need to be particularly careful as a value investor because there are, you know, and I would just looking at the last 20 years, for example. So in 2000, if you were a value guy and you were looking at CAPE, you would have said, oh my God, the market's so overvalued. I don't want to be in the market at all. And you would have missed what was a generational opportunity to be a value investor. And to make just a long only value investor was up in 2001, up in 2002, while the market was falling over. Um, it's that dispersion, baby. Yeah, exactly right. Well, you may, you have a great article on that, which we should we'll link to in the show notes when when we do this. But um, that opportunity didn't, as now that we're going to talk about it, that opportunity, didn't exist in two thousand seven because it was one of those things where it was such a good run from two thousand to two thousand seven. Value actually got pretty expensive, and value was uh, almost sort of generationally expensive at that point. And a lot of that is why values had such a rough run since you know 2007 8 9 there was a bounce out of the bottom in 2009 but then values had a rough run over the last decade plus but the 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 important point through that 2007 2009 period was november 2008 value basically started working and you had four months where value was going ahead while the market was still falling over Value rocketed again when the market actually started going up. It's kind of interesting to watch. Uh, I, it's it's one of the relationships that I watch, and I've spoken at Chris Cole. He 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 discusses. He watches it as well. You can see it. So I often think, how real is this bounce? And I I'll go and look at a variety of different value uh, investors and value indexes and strategies. So the last few days, you know, value's been participating very strongly in this bounce and uh, the market has been sort of less so. And then I look at things like Fang Am and Fang Am has been a little bit flat to sort of not participating as much, which is kind of interesting, which makes me think that uh, we may be starting to see that regime change to a slightly more value regime. I don't know what that necessarily means we've bottomed or anything like that. It's possible that it's just like value is the accelerator and value kind of takes off and then perhaps it sells off first as well but it's one of the things that I often think about even though I have talked about the market quite a bit recently partly because uh, I want I want some bragging rights about not calling the bottom even though I've seen a lot of, a lot of guys calling the bottom I'm not going to call it yet I'll call it in a year I'll, I'll call it in a year and two months or something like that there's a 40% chance we bought it 40% yeah, chance there we go exactly <laughs> So I, I, the reason that I started the show with, with Royal Caribbean and American and Delta and stuff is I was trying to get a sense of what has been sold really, really hard and how it's reacting today. And I think that like Modest Proposal had a good tweet thread that was, I guess, paraphrasing what Gavin Baker had said to Patrick O'Shaughnessy. I didn't listen to that uh, interview yet, but basically in that, in the beginning of a market, you get rewarded for doing what's obvious 
and then in the end of a bear market, I guess Gavin said something about like you, you get rewarded for doing what's uncomfortable. Um, the thing that's been really tough for me is like, I, I don't, I don't run a lot of traditional value screens, uh, I, but I, I do watch like what's been punished and like stuff like casinos. I mean, Eldorado resorts is one that I follow a lot and I want to buy that thing, but I just think the risk of like, we open up, everybody goes to a casino, coronavirus spreads like crazy. We shut down again. I think is just like a very, very real risk right now based on what we've seen and given that Singapore is reshutting down. So like the probability to me that people are really eager to go on cruise lines again. <laughs> there are people I, still like, going. I know. And 80 percent of people just like rebook their their, uh, you know, their uh, reservation. Yeah, yeah. I don't doubt that people are going to make a ton of money in those stocks when the time is correct. I am I am very, very worried that the time is early right now. And even in, in four months, I could see a scenario where everything's open, the first cruise ship leaves, and then like 17 days later, there's some story about how they're all stuck at sea again and people are dying on a ship. Like, I just, I'm not comfortable with that risk being removed from those from those entities. So. I do think they're going to massively outperform on the other side of this. I just don't know its risk that I can get myself to hold. I think barring a some miracle uh, medical breakthrough that happens somehow, and even then, like the distribution of that miracle is 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 another miracle that's required uh, to get it to everybody in an expedient manner. But aside from that, I don't know how you can be that optimistic with without seeing some of the numbers in at least Q1 and especially probably Q2. I mean, July could be the numbers that come out of in July could be absolutely mind boggling and, and way worse than anyone expects uh, that to go back to your operational leverage idea. Like you you take away ton of revenue from some of these companies and it could be. It could be mind-bogglingly bad earnings announcements, and I don't know. Well, it's hard to say much now. We're all just speculating until we actually see some numbers, right? Yeah, but that – I mean that's only uh, – the only pushback that I would give is that's only one quarter, right? So unless that quarter results in a permanent impairment of the balance sheet, which it's obviously going to relative to you know what it was in February, but – that one quarter just isn't that much of a terminal value. Like it's it's just not that meaningful over a twenty year time horizon. So I think this is when like people a people that are truly long term actually do have an advantage. And then you gotta be really right on the thing being able to get survive. Through yeah, that's right. That's why I can't hold the cruise lines and stuff right now. That's why I couldn't hold airlines. Like I'm just not convinced that at an 80% economy and call it 80% load factors, I mean, what, that's like just, I, what, you know, you're in between 60 and 70% uh, of your normal operating capacity. Like, you're not making money. That's 100% of your profit. <laughs> it's probably more than that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know that you're running, and yeah, they got the credit card relationships, like, I get it, but people are spending less. Like, I, it's just... I don't know. These are tough right now. So I, I've got a question here. Uh, sort of, um, this is a calling out Mike Green's theory, 
no one's saying it, but maybe the stock market's going up because of 401k contributions and automated buying of ETFs. What do you think about that? I don't know. Maybe. I think it's pathetic that I was afraid to say eight times eight is 64 in my head because we're on a podcast, <laughs> but I just double Someone's going to correct you, don't worry. I was right. No, I was like, it's 64, just say it. And then I was like, but if I'm wrong, everyone's going to think I'm an idiot. Anyway, I don't know about Mike Green's theory. I, I have no idea what's going on right now with the market. I mean, the, the thing that's tough about it is why would Mike Green's theory be valid when the market's puking like 32% in three weeks and also be valid now? I, I mean, I, I haven't seen the numbers. I don't know him from Adam. Like, I, he, he would be the one to ask. But I just don't I don't think that that's the incremental part of demand that's driving the market up. That's hard for me to understand. Well, how about let's frame it this way. What odds would you assign to a new high being made in from here in 2020? In 2020? Yeah. Uh, like 17 <laughs> percent. I, I, I could see that one out of seven times. I'll take one out of six times just to just to slightly undercut Bill, and I'll have all the under. <laughs> so I got to take a one. You, you can take the over. You. Yeah. I don't take the under. One I should have got yours first. One dollar. I only Smart. took fifteen percent anyway. Once you said that, I was like, oh, I think that's. Yeah, my math is pretty crappy today. My apologies to everybody. So I'm just I'm just thinking uh, I'm just thinking through this now, but I. What if what if the reason that value bounces so hard is just because value tends to be filled up with the junkier companies? It's stuff that re is at real risk of going to zero, and then, and maybe this bounce is not so much a value bounce; it's just a stuff that was down the most bounce. That's what I think it is. I mean, I think that one of the reasons you don't see Fang M participate in the rally is they just didn't sell off very much, and they're still relatively expensive. Oh, gonna get hate mail for that. How dare you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think, I think that's what's going on. I mean, if you just sort of look at some of the big names that are rebounding, they're, they are, they've been punished. There was a comment here that the four hundred one k and ETF buying is pretty insignificant. Sorry, it slipped past. I was, I, I missed it. It's all good. Thanks for the, thank you for the comment. An, an important ten percent of our community right there. Jake, like, do you, want, you know, sorry, Hilton. No, I was just going to say like Hilton. That's one I may have missed. But I mean, like they they got they got destroyed here for a while. Uh, I mean, that was off 50 percent. Like, you know, that should bounce at some point, you'd think. You know what we haven't discussed that we should in this context is Buffett selling the airlines. Uh, the buff dog. Who wants the to only... take a shot at that? The only good theory that I heard that I hadn't thought of is that maybe there is a provision in the bailout package that doesn't allow him to own over 10% of, like, it, it would preclude Delta from getting relief. I did not see that provision. I don't know. I honestly think he just changed his mind because the facts changed. This, the nature of the sell-off, though, was interesting, right? Because he just, like... Dove out of those things to get under nine point nine for the filing, and then somebody said he doesn't then have to file what he's done with it until it could have been July, possibly even next year. It was like he's got this very long period 
to then file. So now he can kind of sell down at his leisure. And the other possibility is that, oh, he's selling down to get under 10%, so therefore he can now take one over in its entirety. Everybody loves to think he's going to take one over. They've been so consistent saying they don't want to own one outright. Yeah, so then the, that makes the first one more likely, doesn't it? I mean, maybe. I, I've always thought they'd buy the whole industry, but not just one. Right? Like, if you could present him with a deal to do Southwest, United... I mean, if he could have a monopoly on air travel, I think he'd buy it in a second. It's just, <laughs> he, he can't. Don't you so, achieve that by earning the basket? No, because he doesn't pull all the strings, right? I mean... Once you actually own everything, then you can say to American, like, stop being a moron, you know, and don't do a levered buyback strategy here. Above my pay grade. I think it's, I think you're, you're better off not listening generally to what he says and just observing more what he does. What's he doing? Well, that's what we're trying to figure out, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure what, I don't think we have enough data to really say i did like a very back of the envelope thing yesterday because although i've taken a loss on them i can't fully walk away from airlines which is probably part of the issue that i have um i thought that delta was like pretty close to 90 cent dollar um is this like stalking your ex on instagram a little bit yeah (laughs) but but it's it's so much less anti-fragile now i mean god forbid something happens next year like they don't have the balance part of the whole thesis is like they got the balance sheet to make it through they don't have that anymore and like they don't have a ton of liquidity it's they're they need government money so i i think you know if the world gets turned on and people can start flying with fuel where it is. They're going to print money. I mean, look at what they did in 15 and 16. But they have a lot of debt they got to pay down. You can't get dividends and you can't get repurchases until they pay this government money back. I just, I don't know. I think the facts have changed a lot. It's going to be hard to do buybacks, the optics of buybacks for a while, I think. Yeah. So. I'm, I'm disappointed that our, that the, interest rates aren't more punitive on this this free money dude you're trying to hammer these people when they're down i want them to actually take it if they need it and i don't want all the other ones who are just like oh here's a free check i'm gonna grab that like it should be capital should be unlimited but very expensive i mean that's the way in in past crises that's been what happens right because there are guys who are prepared to go in there and lend they're the uh, debtor in possession, bankruptcy, uh, levered high yield guys who are, but their money comes at a price, and so they get equity returns out of the debt with a with debt downside, and they the really the Wait, only... are, are you saying that capitalism already has uh, mechanisms in place to solve some of these problems? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> okay. The difference is in this scenario, capitalism is not allowed to work because the government has shut it down for a public health reason. That's that is a different set of circumstances than some moral hazard. You were over indebted and ran your business poorly. But then aren't they? I I agree with both both things that you just said. Then I think that uh, (laughs) this is uh, you know they are like their businesses have been shut down by the government. So fair enough, they should be helped a little bit by the government in that circumstance but many of them have gone in i mean prior to this i would have said gee there are a lot of really ugly balance sheets out there 
and uh, they're doing buybacks with borrowed money at very high prices just to goose the last little bit out. And then you see guys like the the Boeing guys. You know, I, I posted after it. I posted the return on invested capital line of Boeing a few after a few podcasts ago. You know, they spent. 20 years doing like 15% and then they've spent the last five doing some 80% kind of bananas numbers, which you only get by shenanigans. Like I don't know exactly how they did it, but just shenanigans, either accounting shenanigans or just not spending money on CapEx, just doing lots of silly things. And then, you know, they've, they've had one incident, which is the, the, uh, the plane isn't working as well as it should. And now they've walked into a you second mean one. Falling out of the sky. <laughs> is that bad? Should planes fly? I, yeah. don't, I don't know how it works. I'm not, I'm uh, not an engineer. Plane is not working as designed, as in it's falling out of the sky. And from what I understand, it was they were trying to put a bigger engine on a smaller plane, which made it out of balance, which means you have to come up with a software solution, which is not uncommon. Like I've read that skunkworks thing where the guy talks about they, they, make, they make these planes basically, they're just rocks that tumble through the sky without software, which uh, that's a fun thought to jump in and fly in one of those things. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, you're, so what? What? What's the takeaway then? Should we be well, claw, my... <laughs> like clawbacks or something for these? Yes, that CEO CEOs. needs to lose everything. That guy sucks, and he's part of what's wrong with America and limited liability. But like, if you start to go and you say to Boeing, "You guys are going bankrupt now." They are one of the bigger union high. I mean, if you care about labor, labor doesn't usually do that well in a bankruptcy. And I mean, you know, I don't know. There's competing interests. I Boeing is very annoying to me. Restoration hardware, something else that you guys can all do a drinking game to the amount of times that I mention it. Like that guy has put at risk. I, I think he has a legitimate shot at creating an eight to $10 billion company, like very legitimate. I think he also has introduced the possibility of a zero because he has traded owned real estate for operating leases in search of return on invested capital. And he's levered up to buy in shares to burn the shorts, which means he may be a legitimate retail genius that has completely screwed himself over financial engineering. And that like, that's a shame, and I don't have much sympathy for that guy. Like, well, that's I one of my with... objections to like pursuing growth at the at the expense of being a little bit more conservative with your balance sheet. That's a, that's a theme that I return to over and over again that annoys me, and I don't pay up for it. That's why I just kind of it 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 introduces this level of risk into the business that's not otherwise there. Yeah, Matt Bryce. Shout out to Matt if you're one of the ten uh, he, he, from the Sova Group. He uh, he pushed back on me a little bit on RH and I, I was like, yeah, you really do have a point there, which is frustrating to admit, but also true. We just one thing. I, I don't think it's a problem with capitalism. That's a problem with principal agent. That's this ongoing problem. That's been around forever and ever and ever. And I've written about it in several in, at least in deep value. I get, I get into it a little bit in deep value. I can't go too much into it because it's kind of like a, it's a boring legal theory, but it has very real uh, implications. Berlin means is the original kind of discussion of, although this, that, that, they're a socialist. So they they were sort of again it completely. But principal agent is dealt with by a board and having strong shareholders. You don't necessarily need a lot of legislation regulation in there, provided that there is a downside to bad for bad actors. Yeah, well, and I I am a card carrying capitalist like Buffett, but I I do it, limited liability presents challenges. It I think the benefits far exceed 
the cost. But you do see like when these CEOs lever up a company, get at, get a ton of money out, and then they hide behind limited liability or the losses are socialized. That is a very frustrating thing to watch over and you, over You want again. to relitigate Solomon and Solomon from like, what is that, 1820 or something like that? <laughs> did you <laughs> did you study that in law school? I'm sure I did. I've dis- it's British I, it's out of my mind. Orig- original uh, limited liability. I'm probably wrong on those details. Somebody let me know if they know. Jake, we're going to miss your topic, mate. It's, it's, we've got 20 minutes and we've got to do questions. Okay. Oh, gosh. Hurry up. So, Talk fast. <laughs> Bill, you hogged all the time with your... I think that was my all topic, right. honestly. So this uh, research paper came out this week. The author is, and I'm probably going to say this wrong, but it's uh, Pavel Atanasov. Uh, Atanasov? Something like that. I apologize, Pavel. At a, uh, at a not going to work here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so he's a PhD uh, researcher in decision-making science. And uh, the name of this, the article or, or the research paper is Small Steps to Accuracy. <laughs> Sorry. Incremental belief updates are better forecasters. Uh, so they took these uh, four years worth of forecasting data where the, may, people are making probabilistic predictions in these uh, this prediction tournaments and 400,000 observations. So it's reasonably robust. But what they found was that the more accurate predictors made frequent small updates to their predictions and the low skill predictors uh they confirmed their initial hypotheses and made large infrequent revisions to their so they're like they didn't make little adjustments to what they thought the world was going to look like it was like all or nothing and big swings um so here's the the best uh, quote in the whole thing was uh, the best forecasters seemingly experience the prediction task as a long sequence of slight surprises rather than a short uh, string of hard collisions with reality. So all of us right now are dealing with a lot of what feels like reality changing. Perhaps we need to increase our dampening of prediction uh, changes and maybe not move so quickly in one way or the other and stay Stay a little bit more uh, true to your original thesis and slowly update rather than bounce off the guardrails, which feels like I feel like I've been doing that more than I, I should be at this point. But that, that's great, isn't it? That's like a little bit of Bayesian updating to your original thesis. And the more little uh, iterative moves you make, the closer you get to reality without overshooting it's so funny. I saw a tweet today. Somebody must have read something like that. And they said the better investors through these periods are just making incremental changes to their portfolios rather than tossing everything out and starting again from the very bottom. It's kind of, it's an interesting, I think it's a great approach. I think that's interesting. Uh, it's a good, it sort of supports the idea that maybe the market is somewhat fairly valued here, right? I mean, over the long term, maybe this is just a smaller change than feels uh, like it right now. I don't. I mean, I, it's it's very interesting. Do you feel sorry to hijack it? Go back to this market thing again. But do you feel that this is? Do you feel like there's been a change, or do you feel like we've just had we've had kind of like a month maybe of like disruption, and now because the market's up, it feels like we're uh, everything's back to normal. Yeah, price certainly drives feeling and narrative for that matter. For sure. Um, Nothing changes sentiment like price. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I, I think right now we're mostly trading on news, and I guess the data would be the deaths and whatnot like that. But um, I, I do – I think that the small predictions is really important to keep in mind. I mean, you hear people saying like, oh, what whole-scale changes to society will come out of this? Like, I don't know. Neither do you. Like, this is nice Twitter clickbait, but like nobody actually knows the answer to this crap. What's everybody think about work from home? That's for the, that's my that's my big kind of. I think that that's going to be just more broadly adopted, or it's going to accelerate the adoption of work from home. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it'll be more of a gradualism as well. Like maybe one or one day a week or something, you get to work from home instead of having to come in. But uh, that was already happening. Yeah, I think maybe a lot of people are already at that level. Speeds up a little bit, but how would we even know, really? Uh, I think where it could change is an industry like banking that's so regulated and sort of like old, for lack of a better term. You know, like some of the some of those types of industries are maybe forced into a change that they otherwise wouldn't be. But I don't see a scenario where people just like don't come into the bank anymore. Like, I mean, if you're at J.P. Morgan, you still need to go in for certain meetings. Um, so I don't. I, I think on the margin, work from home probably increases but so far i've got two work from home sucks <laughs> that's not happening anytime soon yeah well i mean that's the thing like i really yeah. miss people i mean not being around people sucks i don't know that i'm gonna go out to a concert your, right away is but your family I, not people i mean they're fine <laughs> I, I know them very well at this stage yeah i uh I mean, like, I wouldn't go to a concert because people are sweating and very bunched in but i mean i i would be I'd be open to going to a restaurant. Straight into the mosh pit, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're more brave than I am. Get some. Go back to to a punk concert and get in there and do that, like, punching and kicking and head banging, get the sweat on you and in your mouth. Awesome. That would feel kind of good, though, right? There'd be something cathartic about it. You could tell Boris Johnson hello. (laughs) Ouch. So let's um, is it? let's it's got fifteen not, not minutes. That guy, that guy deserves it. Throw some questions in. I've got a banger already up on the screen. Uh, this is going to be a, this is a bill question probably. But uh, so I just had I've got this podcast out at the moment with Stephen Clapham. He runs this thing called Behind the Balance Sheet. He's got all of these little tricks for uncovering fraud in businesses. It was awesome chatting to him. Uh, one of the tricks that he had, and I put this up on the Twitter machine today, was uh, when you see very fat margins. He says that you know when when the margins are way out of line with the peers, that's often that's a that's a telltale sign. And the reason is it's so much easier to fudge profits than it is to fudge revenues. You know, revenues moat. are like there's a record of revenues. So the question, what, what, what were you saying then? Moat. Yeah. I think I put that to him. I said that's often a sign that that's what something that people look for too. But then he said, you know, then you dig in and you look for other indicia as well. So. So the question is, uh, the the podcast on fraud sounded a lot like TDG, margins way higher than peers, tons of ad Get backs and debt, narrative-driven story, which Hallie pushes Berkshire of aviation aftermarket. You sound a lot like Citron in 2016. Next. Now, go on. Have a go at it. No, I mean, look, I they... Uh, they run a levered operation with uh, their strategy is to go after niche parts. So uh, there's a reason people don't like them. I don't think they're a fraud. I think it's that's a big, big jump. But whether or not treating what do you, what do you say way, to the the uh, the argument that it's a regulatory capture thing where they're just basically jacking up the prices on 
stuff that the government has to buy, and now we're all paying for it. Well, I mean, okay. <laughs> that's the world. That's the world you live in, yeah. right? So the idea right. of like, oh, we're all paying for it. Well, if nobody else was making it, and the plane had to sit there for a long time, that they incur costs that way also. Like I think that if you believe in capitalism, it is not impossible to replicate the regulatory capture. Uh, so if it's that profitable and that extractioning or whatever you would think there would be somebody else that would copycat them. I think part of the issue is that their their parts are so specific that it reduces the incentive to come in and do that. But because of that, you get outsized margins. I mean, I think that's sort of the tension between the two arguments. So you, you would have been a fan of Valiant? Uh, no. Yeah, so how did, you avoid, how did you avoid Valiant in real time? I know nothing about pharmaceuticals. That's, That's it. That Jake? is game set match for me. How did I avoid it? Yeah. Um, and just kind of look like a hedge fund hotel to me. Not that interesting. Yeah, I. I it's too expensive I'm, I'm, for me. I'm I'm hesitant for some of like especially the very very rapid acquirers that are growing inorganically that way. There's so much like the accounting decays pretty relatively to a, a more normal business uh and makes it hard to say how how clean or dirty a, that business is like it, it just it muddies the water anytime you have a lot of acquisitions like that that's why so, you do it well that's fair i mean that's I mean, why they do it yeah it's that is my my one beef with transdime is they cite organic their their organic growth number that they cite does not strip out like it's like okay we made the acquisition this year and then next year it's organic but, like that's that's not really it's organic like, yeah that's yes it's uh that's like a chick -a duck it's not quite a chicken or a duck it's the thing uh, when i was watching so that i've been watching that f1 uh f1 drive thing on survive. netflix drive to survive yeah it's excellent first that, uh, season has this what's up greg mcphee First season has this entrepreneur. I don't know anything about him really. Uh, the the guy who runs the uh, Force India thing. So when mm -hmm. I when I saw him come onto that, I was like, I had this flashback to all of these eighties entrepreneurs. They called them entrepreneurs. So there's finger finger things that they called them in Australia. They were just like leverage buyout roll up guys, and it sort of it cured Australia of like backing these things for a long time because all these guys blew up and they either ended up in jail or in non-extradition treaty countries or dead. And I, when, I, when I saw that guy... it's <laughs> not a great way to end up. When I saw that bloke uh, being interviewed and he said a few things when they asked him questions, I was like, oh, I've seen this before. I know, I know everything about you without even knowing what you do because it's just all smoke and mirrors. And so when I saw... Uh, you know, all due respect to Canadians, but I, I think of you like Australians. Like when I saw a Canadian roll up, massively expensive, I was like, yeah, just don't touch that one with a 10-foot pole. Yeah. Here's a question. How do you value or buy a company right now without any idea what the earnings or the financial metrics are? Well, I think, I mean, I think Amen. you got you to gotta normalize it. I mean, here, here's what I would say is how can you buy a company looking at the next quarter's earnings knowing that they're not representative of what the company actually looks like? 
and and also knowing that I mean, how many standard deviations outside of normal are we actually right now when a company has zero revenues? So why why would you be any more comfortable buying after the next financial print than now without like looking at the last 20 years and trying to figure out how does this company perform? Yeah, so you're saying no change really. Yeah, well, it just feels easier to see the numbers to me, but I don't know that like this quarter is not going to be representative of anything except for if the next pandemic comes, what does this look like? Like I would look at 09 if for cycling in my head. Jake, I think you have a different view, right? Uh, no, I mean, I think in theory you're very right that this is, you know, one or two quarters, if that's all that it is, shouldn't impact valuation that much. My argument has been that it's it was already too expensive to begin with, and it's not really gotten dramatically cheaper when there and there's been a lot of existential risk added that wasn't there in December of 2019, and it's like not really priced in to me. So, it's I don't know. It doesn't. It feels like it's an underreaction to maybe bigger problems. That's my that, the price implications to me at this point. I just think it's the same thing that we always do. There's always some issue. You've always got to go in and figure out whether you want to own it or not. I think that the at a macro level, the impact is going to be probably a little bit bigger than everybody's anticipating at this stage. Because I, but I also think that we were, I, I think we were a balloon looking for something to looking for something sharp to pop ourselves on for quite a while. And here it, it turned up in the form of coronavirus. But you know, like I said last week. Cam Harvey had already come out. There are all of these signs out there that there was an issue. So I, I just think it's, for me, it's kind of really it's business as usual. Like things get cheap and I buy them when they get cheap and I would never really think about the next quarter. I, I think it's going to be hard for the whole market to kind of shake it off without even having a look at the numbers. But maybe maybe everybody's rational. Everybody just has a, just discounts the next quarter year and looks out 30 years on the horizon. Seems unlikely, but maybe. Mm. I assure you that I've been trying to do that, and I also haven't been rational the whole time. It's been pretty scary at times. Also, sorry, Greg Maffei, for calling you Maffei. I have billions in my head. My bad. I just want to make sure that we take care of all 10 listeners. Good question. Uh, uh, Did you guys see the AQR paper where they looked at value investing and they looked at um, whether the fundamentals justify a level of valuation and they say whatever the valuation the company has beyond that they they call it speculation did you guys catch yeah. that paper i i saw a little something about it, but i didn't read the original so it's, I... yeah it's the, it's their most recent value paper it's it's worth digging into for this method which i think is kind of interesting so i've got a question up from kevin uh in a quick sample of about 40 s p companies the max percent of the valuation using AQR's method in the next two years was ten percent. Was that Kevin? Is that the max percentage of speculation in the in the valuation that you're talking about there? Which would seem to suggest that there's you know that's the, then things are getting like maybe they're ten percent too expensive. How did they come up with that fundamental number? Like what's the? Oh, it was like that's that's hard. I think I was looking at the next two years. Oh, uh, and put a put a fifteen multiple on a next two years earnings or Could something. Have been something like that. I can't remember the exact detail. I now. mean, the thing that's really hard, and I, 
I I analogize a lot of stock investing to real estate because it's more tangible to me. But like a a uh, high rise in downtown Chicago is going to trade at like I don't even know now, but let's call it a three cap. Something in Omaha, you know, in some suburb, like some rental uh, house, maybe a ten cap. Is is that disparity? Is that speculative? Like, how are we defining it? Because there is fundamentally that that three cap is never going to be a ten cap if the world is normal, right? And and if the world is abnormal, that eleven cap is no longer that. It's probably a twenty. So like, there are inherently spreads that assets trade at, and I just don't know. Uh, I would need to read the paper to get a sense of how that balances that. Yeah, there's a little bit. Kevin says, that's the amount you'd lose if you zero at the next two years. Speculation puts a multiple on two-year-out earnings. I think it's an interesting... I thought it was a really interesting analysis that they did. Uh, I still don't want to use it, but I thought it was very interesting. Maybe if I was a little bit more discretionary, I'd use it. Oops. I do like Cliff. I'm happy he's back on Twitter. That's been the best gift coronavirus has given. Did you guys see Burry got on yeah. Twitter? Yeah. You guys yeah, all seen came, came out hot with came it. out and, swinging, and the the uh, shutdown tweets, which you know, Mike, do your thing, but man, that's not the way to to ingratiate the audience. Hey, when you, you he has aspirators. It's that's not a concern. I well, think he also is. He just super, calls it like he sees it. He's also super long tailored brands, and no one's buying suits right now. Taylor, well, nobody nobody and blames him for talking his book. <laughs> Oh, because he's Listen, Burry. Yeah, if you get if you get uh, Christian Bale to play you, then you get to do whatever you want. Yeah, he's long a, a middle of the mall retailer and a suit seller, and you wonder why he wants to end the lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> Motivated reasoning. Well, everybody's talking their book in different ways. Don't ever forget yeah, that. Uh, I know. Same goes for me. Me too. So I've got a Ryanair question for you, valuation aside. They've got the most uncomfortable chairs among the low-cost airlines in Europe. Dude, O'Leary's a beast. That guy is awesome to read his conference calls. I love Ryanair as a business. Just not right now. So, uh, I've got another just question. Just if it wasn't an airline, you'd really love it. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, like under normal circumstances when they can actually sell a seat, I tend to prefer their business. When they pivot to a SaaS model somehow, that's really going to be. Dude, Ryanair Labs. That's their SaaS. That's the SaaS multiple. You got to sum of the parts that thing. <laughs> so I got a question about looking for longs in the commercial real estate space. So there's two. Uh, there's the mortgage REITs. Um, I've had people. Uh, I've got friends who trade that kind of stuff. They were all going absolutely berserk that weekend that. They were liquidating over the weekend. They couldn't. They were, one of the portfolios was getting liquidated, and I had guys like trying to set up, trying to set up hedge funds and raise money and doing all sorts of things over that weekend because they all wanted to take advantage of it. I don't. I haven't followed all of those names super closely since, but I did notice on that Monday they were all up like thirty something percent. Uh, I've got a lot of shorts on that are like commercial REITs. Um, I, th you know, I'm. I think that. This next quarter is going to be interesting, just seeing what happens with... I, I think they're already kind of expensive and ugly balance sheets. And I, I just wonder if a knock like this really 
how you know if we see some real damage in that sector but I, I don't know i don't have any kind of macro view on it my shorts are all bottom-up shorts i've been thinking about uh what does muni debt look like in a in this world right now where i'm i'm not paying hardly any gas taxes i'm not paying a lot of the sales tax that i was paying I'm speeding not paying tickets speeding tickets red light tickets none of that uh there's all kinds of ways that i'm that I previously was paying money that I'm not now. I have to imagine some of these municipalities have to get over a barrel at some point if we stay pretty quickly, right? Just get a bailout, won't they? Get on the stimmy. Return free risk. Everybody's on the stimmy. I think think that is phase four of the stimmy, actually. I heard that that discussed. Is that right? Um, yeah, I I don't know about the mortgage REITs. I do know Simon Property Group bought a lot a lot of shares. They like directors and David Simon bought their shares in the open market. I don't understand that trade. Uh, Annalee is one that I looked at. Dividend yield today, right now, twenty one point five percent. So, and like a lot of it is Fannie Mae backed mortgages. I don't understand why that product trades there. But what scares the shit out of me there is you've got long-dated assets and short-dated debt. And it just seems to me that if rates were to go up eventually, it just that seems to me to be why that is priced where it is. Uh, I might be wrong, but that seems to be how you lose. Uh, I was on a Ryanair flight, and they tried to sell lottery tickets over the loudspeaker mid-flight. <laughs> Good for them, man. More revenue. They know, they know their clientele. Yeah, uh, and agency rates still very cheap, twenty to thirty-five percent dividend yield in Morningstar. Folks, yeah, but I mean, but why, why, why in a world where rates are so hard to come by, has an entire asset class been thrown away like that? I'd need to answer that question before I just see the headline yield. Oh yeah, because yeah. those dividends oh. are getting cut. Yeah, like right. That. Yeah, and they're levered. We're coming up on time, fellas. What do we normally do at this to- at this point? Play an awesome song and say good luck. Da, 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 da. Uh, Thank you all for tuning in. Yeah, thanks, folks. That was really fun. Great questions. Uh, let's hope the market keeps on doing what we all want it to do. <laughs> Whatever that is. Whatever yeah. that is. <laughs> hope your stocks go up and nobody else's do. Yes. Shout out to the 10. Thanks, fellas. See you next week. Stop when the clock gets 13. Sing one, two, three, four. Cause, cause, cause.